Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. We make low-maintenance bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we had nobody coming into the showroom, so we started doing virtual visits via Microsoft Teams. We're able to see two or threefold the amount of customers we used to be able to see. All of a sudden, we could open up our showroom to customers around the world. I really think it's going to set a standard for retail moving forward. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams. Today on Something You Should Know, you think you know the origin of the phrase riding shotgun, but I bet you don't. Then, what are you made of? The atoms that make up you have been around for a long time. There are atoms in your body that were once in dinosaurs, in pretty well any living thing you can think of. It's about a 10 year cycle that pretty well everything in your body gets replaced. Some of it's a lot quicker, but pretty well all of the atoms in your body will have been replaced in the last 10 years or so. Also, why you should stop trying to get better at things you aren't very good at in the first place. And what makes a genius, and what do geniuses have in common? Most important, they are curious. They are not uncomfortable with being outsiders. They have the ability to learn vast amounts of material and be able to combine it, which will lead to new ideas. All this today on Something You Should Know. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. When I was a kid... And perhaps this happened to you if you had siblings as well. I had an older brother, and whenever we wanted to ride in the front seat, we would say, I got shotgun. Because riding shotgun meant sitting in the passenger seat of the front seat of the car. Many people believe the origin of the phrase riding shotgun is from the Old West, when stagecoaches had a driver, and next to him sat the guy with the shotgun protecting the stagecoach and the driver from bandits. But that's not really true. Stagecoaches did have guards, and they did carry shotguns, but they never used the phrase riding shotgun. Instead, the phrase originated and was used in stories and movies and television shows about stagecoach guards in the Old West, but the stagecoach guards themselves never used the term. The first use of the phrase appears to be in a magazine from 1921, and it is in the dialogue of the 1939 film Stagecoach with John Wayne. It then became popular in other films and television shows, always referring to the stagecoach guard. But it actually wasn't until the 1950s when the phrase riding shotgun was used to describe sitting in the front seat of a car. And that is something you should know. If I were to ask you, where do you come from, 
you'd probably say, from your parents. They made you. And that's sort of right, but it's only part of the answer, according to Brian Clegg. Brian is a science writer who's written several popular science books, including What Do You Think You Are? The Science of What Makes You, You, which is what he's here to talk about. Hi, Brian. So generally, when we talk about people, we talk about who we are, not what we are. So this is kind of a, this is really kind of an interesting way to come at this, to talk about the atoms and the molecules and the cells that make up what we are. I I think it's just fascinating what human beings are. You know, our brains are incredibly complex things, the most complex thing we know in the universe. Uh, And basically, you know, it's us. It's where we came from. Everybody's interested in in where you come from yourself. I wanted to find stuff out for myself and hoped I could put this across. So when you ask people, you know, where do you come from? What are you made of? You know, you usually get the answers of, you know, evolution. I came from my parents. I'm, you know, a result of the two of them. And I'm, is our general understanding of who we are close to accurate or are we way off? I don't think it's an inaccurate. It's more that we just see a tiny part of the picture uh, so that it's not just about your parents, it's not just about your family tree, but it's also the chemical elements that make you up, which came from stars. It's about how the Earth was formed billions of years ago and pretty well all the atoms that are in your body were already there on the Earth when it formed. It's about all sorts of things that have come together to make you the u- unique person that you are. So since you mentioned that, you know, it, we come from the stars, that's a pretty provocative idea. So so, ex- so explain that. Explain where what we are, what makes us. Sure. Well, we're made up of atoms, and those atoms have been here, as I say, for the life of the Earth. Before that, they were floating around in space, and they either came from the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, Uh, when the hydrogen in the universe was first formed, or what's happened is stars are really great big factories for turning small atoms into bigger ones. And over time, these stars make the heavier atoms explode as they get old, and those atoms are sent flying across the universe and eventually came together to make first Earth, and eventually you, after those atoms have been in other plants, other animals, you know, for instance, that there are atoms in your body that were once in dinosaurs, in pretty well any living thing you can think of, and they've eventually ended up in your body. How? How did they get there? Atoms get into us simply by us eating. Uh, so we will eat stuff, we will breathe stuff in, uh, That atom, those atoms are out there, and they get incorporated into our body as we grow over time all the atoms in your body pretty well will get replaced. It's about a 10-year cycle that pretty well everything in your body gets replaced. Some of it's a lot quicker, uh, but we pretty well all of the atoms in your body will have been replaced in the last 10 years or so. Well, that brings up a question that I've, I never have gotten a really good answer to and that I've wondered. You, okay, so you say that the atoms get replaced every 10 years or so, but I've also heard people say, that you slough off cells and that you're a different person every couple of months. So can you reconcile that for me? Well, bits of you are changing all the time. Uh, Some of the things that change fastest, for instance, are the red blood cells in your body. They don't last very long at all. They only last a day or two. Uh, And the skin cells, as you say, are always coming off your hair. 
uh, other parts of your body do eventually come off. But if you look through the whole body, if you think, for instance, your bones, they're some of the things that take longest for this, uh, the atoms in them to be replaced. And, but over time, this all happens. So the different parts are, are being replaced over different timescales. And how are, are humans unique? Are we so different than other creatures? Are we, if you under the microscope, are we all more or less the same? In some ways we are. I mean, if you look at genetics, for instance, the, the, the gene that defines really how uh, an animal is, or plant is put together, then we aren't hugely different from some of the other animals. We're only a few uh, small percentage points different from other apes. Uh, and even with something like, say, a banana, uh, there's maybe 50% of the genes are duplicated. But it's not just about genetics. Uh, one of the huge things that make, makes us very different from the other animals is those brains I mentioned. Ours are far more complex uh, than other animals' brains. And as far as we're aware, there aren't other animals that do many of the things with those brains that we can so they, they don't create stories. They don't create technology. Yes, they might have little tools and things, use a piece of wood or something like that, but we're on a totally different scale to any other animal that we know. Is there a good understanding of what it means to be alive? You know, we're, we're this pile of atoms that came from dinosaurs in outer space, but so is, I imagine, so is a rock, but the rock just sits there. We're alive. So what's the difference? That is a really good question because, to be honest, exactly pinning down what life is, is something that science really hasn't entirely managed to do. So biologists will tell you that life involves various processes. Uh, so living things typically will grow, uh, they eat, uh, consume things to produce energy, uh, they give off waste, uh, they reproduce, uh, and all these things come together to make something that's living. But actually saying what, what's that spark, if you like, what the thing that makes the difference between something that's living and something that isn't living really is quite difficult to pin down. Uh, one of the things that some scientists are starting to look at is the way we deal with energy, that living things can effectively push themselves away from their natural state because of the way they use energy, whereas, say, a rock just kind of sits there and is a rock. So there are differences, but they're really quite difficult to pin down. Yeah, well, I imagine if anyone could pin that down, I mean, that would unlock a lot of mysteries to if we had some understanding of what it meant to be alive. It, it definitely would. And it's also more than that with us because we know we're, we're conscious, for instance, we, we take in the world around us. But that also is a real mystery of what consciousness is, of what it is that makes us able to have that feeling of being alive, of relating to the world around us in the way that perhaps um, a slug might not, for instance, or a fly or something like that. Well, that was going to be my next question is, you know, what does it mean to think like to, to be conscious? What does that even mean? But I guess that's a piece of what does it mean to be alive? That's right, but it's a very special piece. What we do know is that not everything we do is about consciousness. I don't know if you are a touch typist. I know a lot of people are where they can sit and type uh, without looking at the keyboard. I can do that. And I can type the letter H, say, 
But I don't know where the letter H is on the keyboard. If you ask me, I cannot tell you where it is. I can just type it because it's not really a conscious action. Or if you drive a car, there's a lot of things you do when you're driving that you don't actually have to think about, oh, I've got to uh, push this lever, I've got to turn this. It just happens as you go because we push it out of our consciousness. And a lot of things that we do aren't consciously controlled. But there is this consciousness. There's something there, apparently. Some, some scientists actually believe there isn't really a consciousness, that it's only, uh, uh, if you like, a, an appearance of being conscious. But I think the majority would still say there's something there, and it's one of the biggest mysteries in science still today. Well, that's part of that, I guess, part of that conversation of, you know, do we really have free will? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, because that makes a huge difference. Because if we don't have free will, is it really fair, for instance, to punish somebody for something they do if they have no control over that? I think most of us would like to think there is such a thing as free will. But it is really difficult to pin down when you look at where is that coming from? Where is it happening? Where is that free will actually based uh, and what is makes it happen? Isn't that weird, though, to think that th th there might be a possibility that this is all programmed out and that, that you really are not a participant, you're just a, like a chess piece? Well, that's right. And it goes back really all the way back to Isaac Newton, who had this idea of the universe being a little bit like clockwork, where you know everything happens. And in principle, uh, there's a, a French scientist called Laplace who said, uh, you know, if I knew everything about the way everything's put together, I should be able to predict everything perfectly into the future, exactly what will happen with everything. Now, actually, modern science says it's not that simple because quantum physics tells us that there's a lot of probability going on, that things don't just necessarily go one way or the other. It's only there's a chance it'll do one thing, a chance it'll do another. But even so, it's easy to think of this picture of the world where everything relates to each other, everything goes forward like clockwork. And if that were the case, then really you aren't controlling what happens. It's just what will happen. So I, I like to think we've got free will. I hope you do too. Yeah, I do. But, but you also have to wonder why some things happen. You know, they, we just, mm -hmm. it's, everybody has those experiences in life that are either amazingly lucky or amazingly unlucky, or you just happen to do the right thing. And you have to wonder, is it just, you know, chance, random chance that sooner or later that's going to happen? Or is there a bigger picture here? I certainly think there's, there is a lot that is about luck. So if you think of what makes us what we are in terms of, is it our nature? Is it the way that we're actually made uh, genetically? Or is it nurture? Is it our environment? Then there's a lot of evidence that it is random factors in the environment that have a huge impact on the way things turn out. You can be you know, a great writer, but never have the luck to have your book read by the right people so it gets published. You can be a great inventor and come up with a great idea, but the fact is it never gets out there in the world, or you can be extremely lucky, make a guess on the stock market, make yourself a millionaire. And the fact is uh, that a lot of that influence is outside random influence, influence luck, things that will change your life and the way you develop. You know, I so often think about what you just said about you hear stories like J.K. Rowling writing Harry Potter and, and being turned down by all those publishers. And if she had given up, we would have never heard of Harry Potter. And I think how many times has that happened where the person did give up or they, they just hit a brick wall? And how many things do we never know 
that could have been wonderful, but we'll never know. Well, that's right. I think that's happening an awful lot because in the end, the stories we hear about are the ones where it does turn out well in the end. You know, you hear about the lottery winner, not the millions of people who had lottery tickets and didn't win. <laughs> right. And it's the same with life, I think. When you look at this, after you write a book like this, and, and your other book as well, but when, when you, you know, close the, close the cover of the book and sit back and take a deep breath, what's the most fascinating part of this to you? Uh, the thing that really gets to a lot of us has to be, you know, our place in the universe in a way, uh, whether you're talking about if you have a, a religious view, if you are thinking about, you know, us as being a very small thing in a very big universe. Uh, it's, it's that kind of how we, if you can find out more about what we are as an individual, how we then fit into that bigger picture, I guess, is one picture part of it. And for me, the other bit is this nature versus nurture thing. You know, I got kids. Uh, thinking about how much do I influence how they are as they become adults and how much is that coming from their genes, how much is it coming from the wider environment. So if you have kids, I, I guess that has to be one of the big things that it makes you think about. We are taking an interesting and close look at what makes you, you. And my guest is Brian Clegg. He is a science writer and the name of his book is What Do You Think You Are? The Science of What Makes You, You. So you own or rent your home, right? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's geico.com. A new year is a good time to discover new interests. And if you have kids, a KiwiCo subscription will help your child discover something new all year long. As a subscriber, you get these very cool crates delivered to you that contain fun and innovative science and art projects. And they have different ones for kids of different ages. We've been KiwiCo subscribers for quite a while now. and Some of the projects that my son has created are a pinball machine, a safe, a hand pump, and the most recent one, he actually built the headphones I'm using right now in the studio. Encourage your child to be innovators and creative thinkers. They won't believe what they can build and accomplish with KiwiCo. As a parent, I know it's hard to find new creative ways to keep kids busy while stretching their imagination, especially now. KiwiCo does all the legwork for you. Get real high-quality engineering, science, and art projects for your kids. And don't be surprised if you join in to help, as I always do, because these projects are so much fun. KiwiCo is redefining learning with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid, or kid at heart, at KiwiCo. Get 30% off your first month, plus free shipping on any crate line with code SOMETHING at KiwiCo.com. That's 30% off your first month at KiwiCo.com. Promo code something. So, Brian, when you look at human life today, I mean, 
how are we doing? How, I'm sure life is better than it used to be, but, but is it continuing to get better? Yeah, I mean, as you say, if you compare with, frankly, practically any period in the past, if you go back a hundred years, you go back a couple of hundred years, most people had pretty bad lives. You know, there were people who were rich, there were people who uh, could afford the the kind of things we take for granted now in terms of cleanliness, food, and all that kind of thing. But for most people, it was a pretty awful life. Uh, so it, it's difficult to say, really. And we also have to remember that we are evolving. You know, human beings are not exactly the same now as when they first formed about 200,000 years ago. We are evolving. Things are changing, both in us as people and in our world around us. So you certainly can't see, you know, the whole thing will never freeze. It will always be changing. Which makes you wonder, what will we be like in 200,000 years from now? It does. Uh, I, th- I think what's certainly true is the, the pictures. If you remember any of the old movies from the 50s, uh, we had kind of aliens with big bulging brains sticking out of their heads, that kind of thing. That's not going to happen. You know, evolution doesn't work like that. It, you're not going to get a huge brain evolving. Uh, but the fact is we do change. Uh, in small ways, sometimes, you know, little things like, for instance, the fact that most of us in the West can uh, consume milk. Uh, and that is a mutation. We are mutants. It's not just a matter of the X-Men and movies like that. We are all mutants. Every individual has a slight mutation, slight changes in their genes from their parents, from the people around them. And over time, that does result in various changes. Uh, again, I've, I've got red hair. Uh, red hair, well, I used to have, uh, red hair is, is again, a mutation. It's, it now didn't exist at one point, but we've changed. And so there's subtle changes that come over time, but over a long time span, we can expect bigger ones. We just don't know what they'll be. Yeah. Well, I always think of that, that chart in science class of, you know, on the left is the monkey, and then, you know, the next guy's a little more upright, and then pretty soon, six guys later, there's a man standing there. Well, what are the next six going to look like? What's that 12th guy going to look like? Well, the interesting thing about that is it's kind of a myth, that diagram, because it, it kind of shows the idea that people will get more and more evolved in a particular way. So evolution isn't something that has a, an end in mind. It's not saying this is the way to better. So, for example, uh, we know that there were smaller people uh, that were called sometimes referred to as hobbits, uh, on uh, uh, an island in the, I think it's in Indonesia, um, where people actually evolved to be smaller and have smaller brains than they, their predecessors had. So evolution isn't always about getting bigger and better. It's fitting better into your environment. And the fact is, the way we go will be influenced by our environment and how that changes. So given that we do know what we're made of and where we came from, is there any, can you take that information and project into the future what's to come? I'm always a bit wary of futureology, this idea that you can somehow look into the future. Uh, There was a book back in, I think it was 1970, uh, that um, tried to show the way that the world was going to develop. It was really big back then. Um, and we often get these books coming along that say, this is the way things are going. And I think that's almost impossible to predict. There are so many factors coming in there, but I do think what will happen is that we find out more, then we can also understand more what goes together to make a person the person they are. 
Do do you think we're, in terms of understanding that, are we just barely breaking the surface, or <clears throat> are we just barely breaking the surface, or do we know a lot already, and we just need to fill in a few blanks? There's an awful lot that we don't know, I think it's fair to say, because human beings, anything living, is actually a really complicated system, a really complicated thing. Um, my background is originally physics. And when I say to people, physics is actually much, much simpler than biology, uh, often they say, sure, that's not true. You know, physics has all that math. It's really complicated. And yes, there is quite a lot of mathematics in there. But the actual basics of physics is really, really simple. But a biological system, a, per a person, an animal, a plant, when you look down into the detail of what's happening in every single cell in your body, each one of them is like a, a huge tiny factory that's been a huge factory that's been compressed into a tiny tiny space so there's all sorts of stuff going on in your cells the, there's long strings of dna in there controlling what's happening there are lots of little tiny machines made of molecules uh, that do things inside the cell that enable it to split that enable it to process energy and all that's going on inside us it's incredibly complicated what's going on there's lots more to find out on the physical side of what's in your body but also, as I say, things like consciousness is generally described as one of the most complicated and as yet unknown things that we want to find out more about. So there's loads to find out more about, but we are getting there. We are getting more every year. I remember hearing someone say that, you know, uh, I think you were talking about a moment ago, uh, these mutations, that, that we never used to have people with blue eyes. And if you have blue eyes you are related to the first guy or whoever that was woman that had blue eyes is is uh, is that usually true or that were those mutations all kind of run in the family mostly yeah i mean you can have the same mutation happening in two different places but often you can trace that whole thing back and in fact family trees work like this as well we used to tramp family trees as being you know a little thing you do your genealogy look you look back a few generations but you only have to go back uh, I think it's about 30 or so generations, 37, I think. And there were, would be more people in your family tree than have ever lived. Because if you think about it, each generation, there's twice as many people. So you've got two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents. And very quickly, that's, that's a huge number. And the fact is, actually, what happens is a family tree becomes a really tangled thing into the past, something where everything is interlocked. And it's been shown statistically that you only have to go back maybe about a thousand years or so and pretty well everybody in your area, in your continent, that has a living uh, descendant. So somebody from back there who has somebody living and everybody still here will be related to that person. So it means, for instance, that everybody has royalty in their family tree. Uh, if you think, you know, it's something just the Europeans do or whatever, the fact is everybody in the world will have royalty in their family tree. Because if you go back far enough, whatever region they've originally come from, then descendants of those royal characters will still be around today and you will be one of them. This may be a bit of an unfair question, but since you've done all this research and you've really looked into what we are, what we're made of, how we're made, does it give you any sense of of why we're here and, and, and also like, are we that unique? Are humans so unique or, or is life on planet earth so unique that 
there is or isn't likely life elsewhere on other planets. Some people think there are very few planets in the whole universe, or certainly in the galaxy, our galaxy, that have life on them because it is so unlikely that life would have come together the way it did. It's really quite difficult to start things off. As far as we were aware, in the whole four and a half billion years Earth has been here, life only started once from scratch and everything else has come from that. So it's not something that seems to happen all the time. Um, and because of that, uh, it seems relatively unlikely that life would evolve on any particular planet. Um, and so we, we are probably something of a rarity. And you also have to think, okay, can you think of a reason why there might be something so unlikely? And one obvious answer is if you do have religious belief, then, then that was as a result of some greater cause. But as I say, some people do think that, you know, in the end, even if something's very unlikely, the unlikely thing has to have happened for us to be here. It's something called the anthropic principle. If we weren't here, we wouldn't be able to say, oh, this is unlikely. So the unlikely thing has to have happened because we're here to see it. Well, this is one of those conversations that really makes you think about everything. So uh, I appreciate you coming on. My guest has been Brian Clegg. He is a science writer who's written several science books. And his latest is, What Do You Think You Are? The Science of What Makes You, You. And you'll find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you for coming on, Brian. Okay, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. You've likely heard me mention and recommend the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast before. And the reason I mention it is, well, yes, Jordan advertises his show here. And he does that for strategic reasons. You see, people who like this podcast are bound to like his podcast. He and I have a similar philosophy. In fact, I just spoke with him on the phone yesterday to compare some notes. Look, I really want you to give the Jordan Harbinger Show a listen. He covers a lot of topics with big-name guests like Seth Godin, Mark Cuban, uh, Kevin Systrom, one of the founders of Instagram. And Jordan's done really interesting episodes where he talks about his visits to North Korea, as well as how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars being chased by the feds and the mafia. So, as you see, there's a lot of variety, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you'll find something useful that you can apply in your life in every episode of Jordan's podcast. I enjoy the Jordan Harbinger show, and, and I'm not saying that because he's advertising. It really is good. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, any credit card can offer cash back, but only Discover matches all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year. It's like getting one of those birthday cards that's shaped like cash so you already know there's cash inside before opening it. But in this case, it's stuffed with your first-year cash-back match, and you don't even have to send a thank-you note. Cash-back match, only by Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Discover. Something brighter. What makes someone a genius? 
Are geniuses born, or can you work really hard and become a genius? Why is it that some people are not considered geniuses until long after they've come and gone? These are some of the questions tackled by my guest, Professor Craig Wright. Craig is the creator of Yale University's popular Genius Course and has devoted more than two decades to exploring these questions and probing the nature of genius. He is author of the book, The Hidden Habits of Genius. Hi, Craig. Thanks for inviting me, Michael. My pleasure to be here. So, we hear the word genius thrown around a lot. People use it a lot. But is there an an objective definition of a genius, or is somebody a genius if you say they're a genius? The, the funny thing, Mike, is that you could read 300 books about genius, books that would have in the title the word genius, and nobody in those books defines what genius is. Now, I could give you a very long definition, but let me cut to the chase here. Genius is a significance times number times duration. What the heck do I mean by all that? Well, the greatest genius is somebody that that is of great significance, in other words, has impact on society, changes society. Uh, for the greatest number of people, presumably something like penicillin is more important than a new uh, color in tennis shoes, uh, greatest number of people over the longest period of time. So duration is also important. To, to summarize that, genius equals significance times number times duration. It's interesting that that definition doesn't include anything about smarts intelligence. <laughs> yeah, well that was the that was the one thing that really astonished me after 15 years of of working with all this smarts. I started with this uh, out with this notion of what a genius is and a genius was this sort of a brainiac with a super high IQ score uh, that would have these aha moments just slap your forehead and this great idea suddenly comes to them. Well it turns out that that in almost every way the stereotypical notion of a genius is wrong. Uh, And in point of fact, there are so many other things uh, that play into this besides IQ. Having a degree of smarts is important, but having off-the-charts scores on the SAT or the IQ test, something like this, uh, is not the most essential driver of genius, at least in my opinion. So, So in your view, name a couple of people that fall under your definition of genius. Well, anybody that significantly changes the world, Einstein, Picasso, uh, Edison, Tesla, uh, Marie Curie, on and on we could go. But those are some of the uh, A-list people, modern figures, somebody like Toni Morrison, Kanye West, uh, particularly Elon Musk, um, Jeff Bezos, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. These are people on my list, and I think they are important. And what do those people have in common, if anything? They have a lot of things in common. Most important, they are curious. They have a tolerance for risk. They are not uncomfortable with being outsiders. Uh, They have the capacity for sometimes thinking backwards. They have the ability to learn vast amounts of material, remember that material, and be able to combine it uh, in unexpected ways which will lead to new ideas. Those are just a few. What about, though... Often you'll hear about a math genius because he's able to do math in, uh, in, you know, incredible equations and all that. It doesn't change anybody's life necessarily. He's just really good at it. 
Is he not a genius? Because he really doesn't do any, anything to change anybody's life. I would say that person is not a genius because the most important thing with uh, in the definition of genius is creativity. And creativity, again, presupposes impact. It does change society. One could take this to your notion of the uh, uh, math genius or the calculating genius to its ultimate extreme, and you end up with people that are idiosavants. They have the capacity to do math very quickly in their head. They can tell you on what day of the week um, a particular first of January fell in the year 417 BC. But that really changes nothing. Might as well go hire a computer if you want that. Yeah, but it seems it does seem though that you know people make discoveries in outer space or or you know do incredible math calculations or find things that don't necessarily have an impact or or may not have an impact for years, decades, or centuries. But by your definition, they wouldn't be considered a genius. Maybe they will be someday, but they're not now. That's entirely possible, and indeed there are good examples of that over time. The painter Vermeer uh, was virtually unknown in his day. The music of J.S. Bach fell immediately into um, the category of, of obsolescence around 1750, and it took a great a number of years for each of those to be rediscovered. So occasionally that does happen, um, but ultimately, ultimately, uh, their contributions are recognized and people begin to do things differently as a result of of their insights. So it may take time in some cases, but again, we only remember the geniuses because they have changed things. All the people that may have thought of something novel that changed nothing are totally forgotten. So what could someone do to improve their chances of being considered a genius? Well, Mike, I think there's a lot that one can do uh, on very practical terms. Um, some of these, in a way, are obvious, and some of them, I think, are completely unsuspected. Let's start with an obvious one, curiosity. Uh, all of the people that we've been talking about so far are enormously curious. They're autodidacts. autodidacts. They are learners uh, for life. They have the capacity to sort of get themselves out there, the courage to get themselves out there and put themselves in uncomfortable situations where they will learn new things, experience new things, and get a new version of the world in their head. I think we can also adopt what I call a creative lifestyle. I just mentioned getting stuff in your head. Okay, get stuff in your head, but then, curiously, to be creative, to come up with an idea that impacts other people and is not merely novel, you have to do the unexpected. You have to relax. You have to give all of the material that you have put in your head um, a, a chance to incubate, to percolate in your head. And sometimes you do that in the strangest sorts of ways, by, by relaxing. Uh, and I could spend a lot of time talking about the importance of sleep and the importance of sleeping at a particular, uh, for particular times of your sleep and the importance of keeping pen and paper by the bedstand so that you can write down some of your best ideas, the importance of keeping pen and paper uh, by the shower. Uh, the importance of taking long walks, but not with other people, not talking to other people by yourself so that you give all these ideas that you've put in your head a chance to percolate and a, can a chance to reassemble in ways that they haven't assembled before. That, that is, in fact, a creative idea. So you said don't talk to other people about your ideas or do talk to other people? 
initially do talk to other people about your ideas, but you're not then you're going to have their ideas. What are your new ideas? Well, then I would say it's very important to go to do a number of things. You, it happens in a number of different ways. You can go for a walk, but one, don't think about the physicality of walking. Just get in a regular pulse in which you don't have to worry about, okay, come on, push left leg, push right leg, stand up straight. What you're doing is relaxing. You're giving all of those things that you have in your head the opportunity to not think about anything else, but it's at that stage that these things can recombine into potentially creative insights. I could go on to music. I happen to be in the field of music. The worst thing I can do is actually think about the music if I want to come up with a creative idea. I don't want to be thinking. I have to discipline myself not to hear a one, six, four, five chord progression, but to just sit back and go with the flow of the music because that will allow me to get into this other zone that will allow all of the things that I really do have in my head to combine in ways that they haven't combined before. Same thing with traveling. Why do so many great people, J.K. Rowling or Walt Disney, who thought of Mickey Mouse in a train ride, why do they have all these wonderful ideas when riding in a train? It's because of that regular, repetitive motion. They're not really thinking about it. It's in the background. It relaxes us. And now the barriers to creative insights are down. And on they come. Is this a deliberate thing? Is it, well, I'm going to go do my genius stuff now, so I'll be back later because uh, that's what I'm going to do? Or is this much more of a gift or, a, or a, just a natural part of who they are? I don't think it's a gift. I think it's something that we all can do. Look, I'm not a gifted guy, and I'm, and I'm no genius. But I'd like to think I've, I've done a reasonably good job in, in putting together a volume about the subject of genius. So if I can do it, virtually anybody, anybody can do it. And what you really do have to do is get a lot of stuff in your head and then put yourself in a situation where you can, can organize it and combine it and have insights um, that uh, you otherwise would not have. You you have to be intensely engaged in what you're doing, but then strangely, you have to have also the capacity to pull back from it. And then, most strange of all, perhaps, or maybe not so strange, at the end, you have to come back in and do the exact opposite of relaxation, and that is to concentrate so that you get the product out the door. You've got the ideas in there. You've written them down on these scraps of paper. Now get to your office and write them down and and organize them in some compelling fashion. Now you've got to be productive. Now you've really got to concentrate. When you look at the geniuses that you admire or that you can point to as geniuses according to your definition, what's their batting average? Is it high, low, or 50-50? Great question. It's all very high. That's why they're geniuses. Geniuses is this relative scale, up and down. And they are we call them geniuses because they're up at the top. They hit it out of the park. Uh, almost every time. You're probably asking also, do they ever strike out? 
boy, do they ever strike out. And sometimes they strike out hugely. Uh, Edison struck out hugely with direct current. Nikola Tesla was correct. Edison had too much uh, of what we call uh, sunk cost syndrome. He was so deeply involved in direct current that he really couldn't see the advantages or wasn't willing to entertain the advantages of Nikola Tesla's alternating current. Edison also went off in some crazy mining scheme in northern New Jersey for iron. How much iron mining do, do we do in northern New Jersey these days? these days. He spent five years and incalculable amounts of money on this particular venture that proved to be uh, worthless. But he had s such perseverance and he had so uh, such a wide vision of his field and what might be that he was able to, to uh, hit other home runs at different times at, at bat. What about people who stumble onto something, something that turns out to be something big. And it's the only thing they do, and they weren't, they weren't necessarily full of all these characteristics that you've been talking about, about curiosity and whatnot, but, but they stumbled onto something, it changed a lot of things. Are they a genius? Uh, I don't think the notion of of the one-hit wonder um, is particularly useful because the impact isn't significant en enough. Uh, because if 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 you do it only once, it's it's a, a one-time event. Let's think of Velcro, for example. I think the gentleman's name was Georges de Mistral. He invented Velcro. We all use Velcro every day, but nobody thinks of Georges de Mistral as as a genius. Um, uh, they they think of him, uh, if they think of him at all, as simply something of an oddity, somebody who happened to bump into something that proved to be useful. The same thing with the post-it note. And Art Fry, who was working at 3M, I think in, in Minneapolis there, came up with the post-it note when he had this particular uh, idea. Uh, uh, Lonnie Johnson came up with the super soaker squirt gun with the same kind of thing. He was working in the Jet Propulsion Lab out in, in Los Angeles. He was trying to get a pump that would work in a particular way. Happened to think of what was happening as a kid in hot days in Georgia uh, and invented the super soaker uh, squirt gun. Uh, but we don't usually think of Art Fry, Georges de Mistral, and Yanni, Lonnie Johnson as genius in, in any particular way because they've only done it once and, and we really thereafter don't pay much attention to them. But it would seem, though, wouldn't you agree that if, if let's say Edison invented the light bulb and did nothing else, that's, that's pretty significant. I mean, even if it was only one. Okay. Yeah, no, no, good, good for you, Mike. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I would. Ha here's a good example that I, I suppose, to my disadvantage, proves your point. Let's take the discovery of penicillin. That was essentially one thing that Alexander Fleming uh, discovered, and we like to think of it. The story is he discovered it by accident. It's not quite that simple, but that was a one-off invention. But I would say, in my defense, then, then it takes us back to our. Uh, mathematical equation of G equals S times N times D, that the significance of what Fleming did with penicillin far outweighs the significance of what, say, Art Fry did with the post-it note, because obviously penicillin has saved millions of lives over the last hundred years or nearly a hundred years, and the post-it note hasn't saved any lives as far as I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd love to hear that story if it has. It'd be a great story. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that would work. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but do do you find when you look at great geniuses who have done all these wonderful things that there is something about them that they work better in solitude, or if you dig under the surface? Was there a team or other people that were part of it? They just didn't get quite the recognition. I would say from my research in this over 15 years now that emphatically know that all these people really are loners. What they're very good at is getting information because they need information. They need to know stuff. They're very curious. They're always reading and talking to people. Yeah, talk to people. You get information. But in the last analysis, it's you. It has been these individuals. It's been the Tesla. It's been the Edison. It's been the Einstein that individually comes up with these particular solutions, comes up with these original insights. Now, however, uh, people have been uh, are caused to ask, was Einstein perhaps the last solitary genius? Because it all seems to be shifting over now, at least in the sciences, to the genius of the team. We hear the word genius applied to a lot of people in the arts, but it would seem to me that things get a little murky here because you know, one person's art is another person's garbage. That I don't, I don't think that's art. So how could that guy be a genius when what he did isn't really art to me? And and how does art, or even music or literature, how does it change things in a substantial way? So maybe it's not genius. That's absolutely true, and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you go to auctions. It uh, look was for sale today at Sotheby's and. Uh, and Christie's, and you can't believe that. That's art. I, what the, where's the art there? I mean, are these prophets crying in the desert, desert, or are these absolute lunatics that will be totally forgotten 50 years from now? Only time will tell. And strangely enough, who is it that decides the genius? Well, it's, it's we who decide geniuses, and how do we manifest this? Well, we decide ultimately by which of those paintings uh, uh, the, that we thought were all absolute nonsense end up being in muse museums uh, somewhere. So we, the public, as we kind of like this or that, and people want to see this or that, so we put this into a museum, begin to venerate the in museums. Um, that's how we make movies about the artists, we read books about the artists, we have university courses about the artists. That's how genius is determined, as society filters through this information over time. But I, I I agree with you. You know, uh, I think the guy's name is uh, Marcel uh, Castellani. I think is Castellani is the artist's name. He was the guy that made headlines recently by taking a banana peel and pasting it to a refrigerator door. That, to me, is not high art, but it uh, got a lot of attention. What about, uh, just curious, what, what you think about performers? Like, you know, people would say Jimi Hendrix was a genius the way he played the guitar. And, and maybe he was because people, you know, it influenced a lot of people that could play the guitar. But he he didn't create something that you could hold yeah. in your hand or that, you know, he's he's just a guitar player. Yeah, spot on, spot on question. Um, the notion of a performer does not at all uh, fall in the same category as that of genius. They are simply carpenters carrying out the directions of the architect, the creator. The genius 
is not Yo-Yo Ma, though I've met him, talked with him. He's very funny, very smart, uh, very kind. Uh, the genius is not Yo-Yo Ma. The genius is the Mozart that he played. Think back, for example. I think I can prove my point this way. How many great actors can you remember from before, say, 1950 or before 1900? How many great performing cellists or pianists can you remember before? They're forgotten. They're just executors. They're carrying out uh, the will of the more important and lasting creator. Well, I think your definition of genius is different than, than the definition a lot of people have, which is more about how smart they are rather than your definition that is more about the impact they have. And it makes for an interesting conversation. Professor Craig Wright has been my guest. He is the creator of Yale University's Genius Course, and he is author of the book, The Hidden Habits of Genius. You'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Craig. Thanks, Mike. It's not only been a pleasure for me, it's been a lot of fun. This probably comes from when we're in school, that when you get a lousy grade, your parents tell you to you know, focus on that subject to bring up your grade. But focusing on what we're lousy at turns out to be a big waste of time, according to Katherine Kramer, who is author of the book Change the Way You See Everything. Self-improvement isn't about trying to improve the things you're not very good at. It's identifying what you are good at and then do those things better. This is called asset-based thinking. And here's what the research says. You need to spend five times more attention and effort on the skills and talents you're good at as opposed to trying to improve the things you're not good at. You are never going to be the best at something you're not very good at. So don't bother. Focus on what you are good at and you will be more successful and probably have a lot more fun. And that is something you should know. You know, subscribing to this podcast has a lot of benefits. If you don't subscribe, you probably should, and here's why. The episodes are then, once you're a subscriber, are sent right to you. You don't have to remember to go get them, and it's totally free. So subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.